This is a drink with a friend. I'm Tish Oxenreiter. And I'm Seth Haynes. Seth, what you drinking? Well, um, we were talking right before we started recording that my children, my older children, always seem to want to talk to us only ever when it's after 9.30 at night. And they want to talk about mm-hmm. super deep, amazing things, which is fantastic, except for the fact that that means it makes a very long night. So I am drinking coffee with a shot of espresso, and I think actually she put two shots in it, which is actually... That's impressive. I went down to Hailfellow. <laughs> I said, listen, man, I'm really, really tired. And uh, she was like, I know what to do for you. And so that's what I'm drinking. I'm drinking coffee with some number of shots of espresso in it, which is... I got to admit, it's pretty fantastic. I may start doing it regularly. Yeah. You nice. Know? Coffee. So, hit with coffee. Like yeah. Hit coffee and coffee. That's what I'm drinking. Uh, what are you drinking today? Okay. So in our last chat, we talked about how we need to have more mocktails because otherwise people are just going to hear about us drinking coffee and water. Well, I don't know what constitutes a mocktail. If it's like a drink without alcohol, but with other stuff in it, but I'm going to go with that. So that therefore I'm calling this a mocktail. <laughs> for my 40 something self, because a coworker of mine, a fellow teacher told me about how her person, her doctor recommended this like water with raspberries and chia seeds. Is that a mocktail? I don't think so. Um, But that's what I'm drinking water with raspberry and chia seeds like that. Um, And I made it fizzy water to make it feel fancy. And I like it. It's for fiber reasons, but Uh, it doesn't taste half bad. Doesn't that Mm. sound really 40 something and boring? Yes. Well, actually, I mean, not to to be a complete jerk, but it kind of sounds 60 something. I'm just saying. (laughs) I know. She was preaching to me the gospel of fiber and was like, what has happened to us? I thought we were cool. We're no longer cool. Anyway. It's okay. It's all right. right. Everybody knows we're not cool. It's we're done with that. We're way past that. All right. So we are here with actually someone cool. I would categorize um abigail favali did i say your name right i think I did. yeah i hope excellent. okay good. okay abigail favali who has i've wanted to have on this show for months now because of her book and how it's rocked my world and other people's worlds um so abigail before we get going what are you drinking this afternoon <sighs> coffee and water yeah <laughs> I, mean, I hate to be like super lame but no, i've not. got my coffee here you know it's mm-hmm. black with one stevia like i like it so nice. there you go. That just All means right. you fit right in with us. So welcome. Yeah. Most no chia seeds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm a little yeah, dubious on the chia determined. seeds. <laughs> I know. I know. It's to be determined. It's a weird situation. Um, I mean, isn't a chia like a small rodent? Or is that I mean, what am I thinking of? You're thinking of a I chinchilla, like, maybe? <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe you're thinking of a These chia pet. You remember those? Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what it is. Too. That's totally yeah. what it is. The chia pet, which is like the... The plan is. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. This is is a granola healthy hippie thing. Anyway. Okay. So Abigail, you wrote this really fantastic book called The Genesis of Gender. Um, And I want to, I want to have you tell our listeners some of your backstory because um, in the past week and a half, your book has come up literally four different times in my life from four different people, all of whom are not Catholic they're all Protestant, and they have told me how this book is like changing everything for them in terms of how they're thinking and giving them more questions to unpack. And I just think that's really cool. And I bring up the Catholic thing because our listeners know Seth and I are recent converts. You're a convert too, but um, 
that this book is very much not just for Catholics. So tell me, tell us a little bit of your like 10 peso backstory of how you became Catholic, because it's really interesting, I think. Okay. Well, yeah, it's kind of a weird story. So I grew up evangelical Protestant, you know, kind of focus on the family style um, in the Western United States. And then I I went to college and I'd be at, at an evangelical school and I became really interested in feminism. Um, so questions of gender have intrigued me, I think, from a young age, maybe because I didn't always fit the right kind of scripts about what girls are supposed to be and do, especially in an evangelical setting. And there just wasn't much content offered about what it means to be a woman or what it means to be a girl. You know, it was the churches I went to were always men talking about men, mostly to other men. You know, even though there would be women and girls present, there just wasn't much reflection on their distinct experiences or callings or anything like that. So I think that raised a lot of questions in my mind. And when I went to college, I thought, feminism, this is the answer. (laughs) Um, And I just kind of cannonballed into that. So I was a philosophy major as an undergrad and took a feminist philosophy course and then went on to graduate school um, to do feminist literary studies, actually. So kind of gender theory and um, women's writing. And I would say that time in my life, my 20s, basically, was a time of deconstruction. I guess that's kind of the term. It wasn't really it wasn't really around or available when I was going through it. Um, but I basically left college a post-evangelical, angsty mm-hmm. post-evangelical. I, I like still considered myself a Christian most days. Um, but it was it had kind of been emptied of most of its content. And I didn't practice. That was what was interesting. It was like it was still this kind of thought in my head that I couldn't shake. But I didn't pray. I didn't go to church. Um, and I just kind of wrestled with faith stuff, but more in an intellectual way. So I just kind of dissertated about my <laughs> religious <Yeah>. angst. <laughs> um, anyway, and then at the end of my 20s, you know, I'm kind of obviously glossing over a lot of complex things <laughs> here, but um, sure. I became, I suddenly became Catholic around the age of, I think, either 29 or 30, I can't remember. And it was in response to a couple of crises that had been brewing in my life, one of which was this escalating spiritual crisis. Like, am I a Christian? Am I not? Um, I had been, I'd kind of reduced Christianity to like these symbols. And I was starting to face the fact that, look, either either it's there's truth here or there's not. And if there's not, I just need to like be a intellectually honest atheist, <laughs> like mm. call it how it is. Or I actually need to, you know, maybe practice if I'm going to say I'm a Christian. So, and at the same time, I become a mother for the first time. And that really rocked my world in so many ways. But I think it opened up my feminism in a way that let new questions come in that I hadn't been listening to. Um, And I think it kind of destabilized my neat and tidy feminist worldview enough that I was able to kind of respond to this repressed religious longing that I'd had for years. And that's when I kind of became Catholic really, really quickly. (laughs) Um, And it was weird because I became Catholic with a lot of my feminist objections unresolved. I kind of was like, oh, I'll suspend them in the air and take a leap of faith here. But I didn't necessarily expect those questions to be resolved. I thought I might just be kind of a, you know, cafeteria Catholic, or, you know, that's kind of the phrase people say. But 
Um, so the first two years of becoming Catholic, I, I really went through this profound interior and intellectual conversion where slowly, bit by bit, through a long and very angsty process, um, my questions were resolved. So, um, yeah. And that was in 2014. I became Catholic in 2014. Yeah. Okay. That was going to be my follow-up question because you're relatively recent, not as recent yeah. as me or Seth, but this is still- yeah, you guys like, are like toddlers s- and right. I've like right. just reached the age of reason, you know, like just barely. <laughs> That's good. Maybe right. you can help us work but you can things speak- out today. Yeah. And you can speak both languages well, you know, like you still understand Mm -hmm. the worlds of both, which I think is really great and really needed when it comes to topics like this. Um, And so I'm curious, you mentioned it. I don't remember if it was another interview I saw you in or if it's in your book where you talked about how like your teaching uh, Mm -hmm. at George Fox just started to not like reconcile with what was going on interiorly, right, with all this gender studies stuff. Yes, right. Yeah, because I started teaching at George Fox, which is a Christian school, when I was a post-evangelical angsty feminist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I had this weird Catholic conversion. And then I thought, oh my gosh, I can't, like, what do I I even believe about this stuff? I don't know. I'm so confused. And then when the dust began to settle, I was like, well, my whole worldview has shifted. And, you know, especially on things like sexuality and the body and gender, because those were my big objections that I had to wrestle through real hard. So once my worldview shifted on those things, it was hard to figure out how to go back into the classroom and teach them in a different way, but also in a way that I guess the main difference was before my conversion or my reversion or whatever you want to call it, I taught gender theory as a true believer. Like I just taught it as if like this is – there was no kind of critical distance from it, Mm -hmm. right? And and gender studies, gender theory is a very – I don't like to use the word ideology. I think it's thrown around too much. But I will say it is an ideological discipline in that it takes certain things for granted that are unquestioned. And in in my education in gender theory, I was never really asked to look at those and to analyze and assess those, whether I believed those, they were just kind of in the air and the water and you just absorb them. So after I wanted to teach it in a different way that had a little more distance, like this is like, what is the implicit worldview here? What is the implicit worldview on offer? And do you buy it? Um, what's good about it? What's not good about it? You know, And so that was the main way that I changed teaching about it. One of the things um, that you just said, you were talking about the things that were sort of in the water of gender theory and in your studies of gender theory, you know, into your uh, sort of post-evangelical angsty years. Um, what were those things? What are the things that are in the water? Like help help us understand what it means um, to sort of study gender theory in the modern era. Sure. So some of those, some of the things that are taken for granted is the the implied worldview is pretty radically socially constructivist. So any kind of meaning or categorization or interpretation of what truth is or what knowledge is, is fundamentally about an exercise of power that works itself out through social norms and language. Um, So there isn't really a givenness to things, almost Mm. like the world, our bodies, everything is this kind of tabula rasa that doesn't come with its own meaning. But then, you know, powers and institutions 
create meaning and then project that meaning onto things. And we receive those scripts just by entering into the social world immediately upon birth and we internalize them. And then we believe them to be true and real in a more substantial way. So that's that's basically, I think, taken for granted that I mean, even moving beyond like, well, clearly there's no God, right? Like we, right. we wouldn't even talk like – we wouldn't even ask that question right. because right. it's so obvious. Like God, <laughs> chortle, you know, like no, there's no God. But then even taking it a step further, like there is no truth per se, no truth as such. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so there's a suspicion towards pretty much any – any authoritative meta narratives that's kind of the fancy word for it but or stories that propose to have this explanatory power so there's even a suspicion towards science as well as religion mm-hmm. um and so that that i would say is the main the main idea that mm-hmm. all, anything we regard as true or real is fundamentally an exercise of power mm-hmm. so in other words you you sort of enter the world with a blank slate, you know, um, I guess from a gender perspective, it's like you, you, you are human. And then as you go along somewhere along the way, these, these scripts tell you, you are man, you are woman, you are female, you are male, whatever the thing is. Um, but that those definitions can then be somehow fungible or changeable because there is, yeah, no I mean, is to, that- sort of, I mean that, I think that that gets a little – it depends on who you're reading, right? Like if you're reading Judith Butler or Foucault, I mean they're pretty pessimistic about our ability to break free of that process mm. of socialization. So mm. at least in early Judith Butler, she – I think she sees more – like our role is to basically be a gadfly. It's like we we know these scripts aren't real as such, but we can't fully escape their power, but we can like mess with them. <laughs> you know, mm. we can kind yeah. of – you know, play with these norms and expose the fact that they're just norms. And, um, you know, especially when it comes to gender, right? We can play with gender, we can mix and match gender signals. And um, yeah, so we can kind of show that gender is not real, but it's this socially compelled performance by making that performance obvious, like through Mm -hmm. drag, for example. So she analyzes how the like the performance of drag shows all gender to be at root, a performance. Hmm. Yeah. So as someone who studies these trends, are you therefore surprised that our culture has gotten to where we're asking the questions we're asking? Or do you think the writings on the wall, like has been for decades that we, of course, we're going to get to this point where everything's on the table and everything's up for question? I'm surprised. (laughs) Okay. I mean, the more I kind of study and write about it, the more I'm like, okay, I kind of see how it's gone this direction. For sure. Um, But like when I was in graduate school, totally secular environment in a master's of gender studies degree in a room full of like, you know, secular progressive feminists doing gender studies of all things. I mean, you know, this is like, (laughs) like we're Mm -hmm. like, that's a very specific subset of people. Um, But, you know, we were reading some theorist, some French theorist who is male, who's writing as a woman in this kind of like, I'm adopting the discourse of woman or something. And we were discussing this essay and we all decided you can't just do that. You know, (laughs) there's this kind of embodied reality. There's a material reality to being a woman that you have to reckon with. And, and that experience is real and you can't just kind of 
step in. Woman isn't a space that you can step into, basically. Mm. Um, you know, and that would have been 20, 2007, 2006, 2007. So, at, like, if you had asked me in that moment, like, okay, you know, fast forward 15 years um, and, you know, there's going to be this huge debate in the culture about whether a woman is female, I would have been like, what? <laughs> really? <laughs> um, and I think the biggest, the biggest thing or the biggest contradiction maybe or tension that I see between like what I was just describing, the gender theory world, the Judith Butler world, and what we're seeing now is that gender identity theory, the belief that gender is this inner self-perception, the subjective sense of who you are as a man or a woman that is so profoundly real that you can realize it at a young age and it can actually be at odds with your socialization and that that's more real than your biological sex, that's a pretty different claim than the anti-realism of Judith Butler, right? So that to me is the really interest or the surprising shift that's happened is that this anti-realism of gender theory has led to almost this new realism or this pseudo-realism where we're now hearing very strong claims about what gender is and that it's profoundly real. And it doesn't seem to be treated as if it's a social construct, even though people will also say it's also a social construct. But so those ideas, that that to me is, is, uh, is hard. I think those are hard to reconcile, that gender is a social construct, and it's also almost this pre-social sense of self mm-hmm. that is so profoundly true that you have to orient all of your identity around it. Mm. Yeah. How did we get there? How did that shift happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I've been thinking through this and – you know, writing the genesis of gender was part of thinking through this, but this specific question I've been thinking through even after I wrote, finished the book. So, um, but something I think the way I'm thinking of the story right now is that the gender theory of Judith Butler and it's not just her, but she's so profoundly influential that she, she kind of represents, I guess, the, the worldview that's taken for granted. Um, that that anti-realism changed, it kind of dethroned sex. So sex mm-hmm. was dethroned. And because um, that's what Judith Butler, that was her big innovation. You know, the second wave feminists were like, okay, gender is a social construct. Sex is biological, you know, neat and tidy. And then Judith Butler was like, well, gender is a social construct, but so is sex. They're both social constructs. Mm-hmm. And so I think the the dethroning of sex, which you hear, you hear a lot, for example, like the phrase sex assigned at birth, and that's become pretty typical HR terminology now. Well, that word assigned is very philosophically loaded hmm. because it indicates that sex is not something that is recognized or identifiable, but it's something that's imposed. Hmm. So that's, that's a social construction as hmm. framing, like that sex is assigned at birth by some kind of external force rather than some something that inherently exists in the body that can be recognized. Mm. Um, And also the idea that sex is a spectrum. So those two things like that sex is assigned and sex is a spectrum. Once those ideas were adopted, I think that paved the way for manhood and womanhood, the basis of that to shift from sex to gender. So to shift Mm. away from the body to this subjective sense of, or this self-identification with the things we associate with Mm -hmm. manhood and womanhood. So that's, 
But I think there's also this piece too, and this is where I get a little like showing my kind of crazy Catholic side a bit, which is that I think part of this dethroning of sex, a big part of it actually started much earlier in the 20th century with the acceptance of contraception in society. So I think that that profoundly reshaped our cultural imagination about what it means at root to be a man or a woman. It's no longer about the inherent potential for motherhood or fatherhood because we don't longer think of ourselves primarily as like procreative potentials, right? Like we don't Mm -hmm. think about sex and procreation. And so once, once we no longer associate those things, then what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, those have to be grounded in different things. And so they tend to be grounded in roles, behaviors, appearance. And that paves the way then for womanhood or manhood to be something that can be stepped into or adopted um, as an identity because it's not innate and it's not grounded in the body. It's funny you said this because I had earmarked here. I I had this open right when you were talking from your book, the section on control, the part on contraception where you talked about how you've got these ancient philosophies like Stoicism and Confucianism that's about the idea of regulating our desires for control. Mm -hmm. And then you get enlightenment, the enlightenment coming in with its progressivism, and that's about uh, controlling nature. So controlling the outside forces instead of controlling ourselves And that makes me wonder if that has something to do with where we're at, too, like what you were just saying. You know, I'll just take this thing that will help me, like like what you were saying somewhere in here about, um, you know, that it's our, as a woman, our oppression is in our biology instead of Mm -hmm. just, you know, like the patriarchy or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that shift that you just described is a really important one, the shift from we like that the good life is found in harmony with nature as in not nature is like, Oh, the forest and the bees, (laughs) but like the way things are, you know? So that this shift in our understanding of nature, whereas the Stoics were like, yeah, there's this, there's this cosmic order, you know, even in Taoism, you know, there's like the Tao, like there's this thing that's bigger than us and we can either, try to live in harmony with that or at odds with that. But suffering is created when we try to live at odds with that. And But then with the enlightenment, it shifts around where it's like, no, hmm. <laughs> we're not supposed to live. We're not supposed to harmonize ourselves with nature. We're supposed to conquer nature. We're supposed to have like bend nature to our will rather than bend our will toward nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So you've talked about with us, all the stuff um, I've heard you say before. Well, you've called yourself a Catholic feminist. I think you maybe mm-hmm. still do. And mm-hmm. um, you have a, a actually a thing online that I've had my teenage daughter take the the video oh, cool. series with it. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about it in a minute. But um, I love your your walkthrough about um, kind of one of the things that makes Catholicism so great is its high value of women, mm-hmm. and that that's part of why you embrace the idea of feminism. But that both sides or whatever sides we're talking about have kind of pushed away from that name. And, and so you kind of feel like you, you are, I don't want to say politically homeless, but I can't think of another way to put it. So tell, tell us a little bit about why, you know, the, the idea of feminism is so loaded and how we can't like feel at home anywhere anymore. Oh, I know. Yeah. After my conversion, there was a period where I didn't know if I identified as a feminist or not. You know, I was kind of like, uh, I think about things so differently now. And anyway, um, 
but I, it was actually the process of writing the scripts for that series you were talking about. It's called Cultivating Catholic Feminism. Helped me work through, okay, what do I really think about Catholicism and feminism or what could Catholic feminism look like? And that helped me. And reading Edith Stein as well helped me really figure out like, no, there is, there is a need for a, t- you know, a kind of feminism that's authentically Catholic. Um, and, and then, you know, the, the gender controversy started heating up and I, I, you know, I think there's almost this like emotional reaction to, I feel like my, a sense of my own dignity as a woman and a sense of seeing my body as a positive thing, like my femaleness as a positive thing, that was such a hard one battle for me that when, you know, suddenly our culture was kind of like, yeah, it doesn't matter. You know, I was like, no, I'm a feminist again. <laughs> you know. <laughs> anyway, um, uh-huh. uh, yeah. Now I kind of now I kind of lost my train of thought. Oh yeah, politically homeless, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's, I mean, within the Catholic world, which is kind of weirder and bigger than you think when you first convert. I don't know, maybe you guys already realize this, but I feel like I'm always discovering weird corners of Catholicism where I'm like, what's going on over there? Um, corners where and- you want to hide. Quarters where I want to hide, <laughs> yeah. for sure, but away yes. from. Yeah. Um, but I think because of you know just culture war stuff in America, there's you know a certain number of, of Catholics and maybe Protestants too, um, conservative Christians, I guess, who are becoming very anti-feminist. But there seem to be like particularly in Catholicism, you know, there's there's a little subset of um, of folks that are like, well, maybe women shouldn't work or maybe women shouldn't vote, you know. And I'm kind of like, wait, what? <laughs> I thought we were past this. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Yeah, but I, I'm often, I think when I, when I critique that kind of Catholicism, I've called, I'm called like a radical feminist. So for some people, they think I'm this like crazy radical, just because I call myself a feminist, right? Mm-hmm. But then you know there are others who think that because of the stuff I've written about gender, you know, that I'm a, I don't know, I'm a turf or something, you know, whatever the. <laughs> They're right. So I'm like, well, I guess I'm a radical feminist no matter what, you know, <laughs> but I'm actually not like, I'm actually just kind of an ordinary mom of four, you know, mm-hmm. who writes things. So yeah, as a member, as a, a member of the patriarchy, um, you can. <laughs> Congratulations. Answer. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> um, I'm really proud of that. Um, I, no, I, you know, as, as a man, I really do like I've, it's it's an interesting space to exist in because as you said, and it's not just Catholic spaces, it's it's Christian spaces in general. Um, you know, it's you it seems like there's um a group, a subset who are like, you know, everything you said. Yeah, women should be, you know, insert traditional you know, woman's role. And then there's another set that seems almost to trip over themselves to to sort of open doors in ways that, that, that water down what it means to be male and female. Um, and then there are a group of people who group of men who just are sitting in the middle being like, I have no idea what to do here. Like I literally mm-hmm. need somebody to just tell me, help me understand what to do here. What would you say um, to the men who read your work and listen to your work? Like what, what do we need to hear the Christian feminists say? Like, mm. what do I need to hear? Hmm. No, oh, I like that framing. Yeah, because you're right. I mean, there is, yeah, you have the kind of poles that either like men and women are interchangeable, so we should kind of eliminate any real distinctions between them, and equality looks like sameness, or equal dignity looks like hierarchy, like pretty strict mm-hmm. hierarchy. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I mean, I guess I think, so how I define Catholic feminism, which again is drawing from Edith Stein, who's a Catholic philosopher and saint and amazing story. Mm -hmm. She was martyred in Auschwitz. And anyway, she's very cool. If your listeners are new to her, she's worth looking into. But um, so she talks about how, you know, if you read Genesis and you see the effects of the fall, how the fall distorts male-female relationships from a dynamic of communion and harmony to domination. Um, And so in a fallen world, there's always going to be that tendency toward domination, like that Mm -hmm. male and female relationships are going to tend that way. Now, it often has been the case that that domination is male domination over women, but I do think there are times when it can be reversed, you know, where an attempt to correct that domination can just flip it around to where women are are dominating men. And so from a a Catholic perspective, both of those are distortions. Um, Mm -hmm. So Catholic feminism holds on to two key principles of significant difference and equal dignity. And it's Mm -hmm. those, one of those things is always sacrificed in the perspectives that you were thinking about, like either Mm -hmm. the equal dignity is sacrificed or the difference is sacrificed. Um, And so I think, I think for men, you know, to have men think about what, you know, what is the masculine genius? We hear a lot of, you know, a lot of talk about the feminine genius and what does it mean to be a man? What does the um, what does male embodiment signal about um, what the kind of genius that can be cultivated among men? Like, and how mm. masculine strength, for example, can be used always for like the good of another, right? So, something an idea I've been thinking about lately is that maybe a core feature of masculinity that mirrors God is generosity. Because if you think about a father the fatherhood metaphor in the Trinity. Well, the father, the father is like this eternally begetting force of generosity. Like he's mm. generating eternally. And so mm-hmm. what, what then can, like, is that a value that can be cultivated for men? Like, what does it look mm. like? Because I do think that men need a positive vision of masculinity. We can't mm-hmm. just like browbeat men because they're men, mm-hmm. but we can also just like turn a blind eye to kinds of masculinity that are you know, replicating these dynamics of domination. So yeah. I think there's, I think there's a lot of room right now for men to begin to th- think about what it means to be masculine in a positive sense. Mm. Um, so those are some thoughts. That's great. That's great. Mm. I'm curious, Abigail, cause I, I think your kids are a little bit younger than ours. Um, how old is your oldest? Nine. Okay. Yeah. Nine to so, two, nine, seven, five, two. Yeah. Okay, so you're in that stage. So Seth and I both oh, have yes. seniors in high school. Um, I also teach high school um, a couple days a week. And so I'm immersed in that world, this teen world. Mm-hmm. And it's a tough era to be a teen right now because, Can't I mean, not only the COVID thing, but just all this that we're talking about, right? Yeah. Um, and it, I mean, I, I want to say, I mean, my, my senior's a, a girl. So in my mind, I think like, especially for the girls, but I think boys have it just as, mm-hmm. as tough. Um, a lot of our listeners, I think, are either with kids our age or about to have kids in our kids' age. Um, what, do you, what do you say to us, like those of us who are parents of teens dealing with everything your book talks about? And can you please write a book for... The teens. 
please and thank you. Yes, yes. Uh, that's so funny that you asked that because I had a meeting today about that idea. I know you did about writing actually. a book for teens. Oh, you're you sneaky. You're Sorry, sneaky. I <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I said maybe I'll, I'll like put in a plus two. I <laughs> see. You anyway, to make yeah, it I mean, sound I, like the Holy Spirit, and it was just you. I know, right? Information. Yeah, we have a wonderful plan yeah. for your life. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, oh, it's hard because I don't want to be one of those people that's like, I'll tell you what to do with your teens, considering I haven't yet parented teens. But, um, <laughs> I guess in, if we're talking about navigating the gender stuff, I do think, I do think it's, it's important to raise children with a sense of their body as a gift and that doesn't mean the body is perfect. That doesn't mean the body, like being a body isn't hard often and there are frustrating aspects of being a body. It doesn't have to be this idealized picture because even the limits of the body are part of its giftedness because hmm. that shows that we need love and our own need for love signals how we can give love, right? So it's part of our, our primary vocation to give and receive love, right? So this gift of embodiment I think is important. Um, I also think... Um, one of the problems, I guess, about the gender stuff in our current cultural moment is that so much of it revolves around the same kind of stereotypes. And so, you know, women or young like girls who have, say, gender atypical interests or appearance or whatever, they're kind of put in the opposite box, you know. Um, and so I, I think that there's a lot of room and and that the Catholic tradition is an asset here because we have this whole communion of saints. Like we just have some really amazing, but also super weird and unconventional saints, right. That are often pushing against norms, but they're doing it for the sake of the good and the sake of love. And so there's this rebellious spirit in adolescence that I think is actually really wonderful. So mm -hmm. you want, you don't want to like squash that, but you also want to kind of guide it. You want to put some guardrails up so they don't like go off a cliff in their rebellion. So they don't end up self-defeating and kind of a self-destructive rebellion. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. developing like the unique personality of the child, I think is really important and getting them mm -hmm. to kind of see themselves beyond labels. We just want to label everything now, you know, in order to feel like oh. we belong. And I feel like these kids are like longing for labels. They feel this need yeah. to be special. And so they want all these things that when you and I were teens were taboo, you know, they want to have a diagnosis. <laughs> um, right, and yeah, so interesting. Yeah. It is so interesting to me. Um, and the thing I just keep thinking about, like when I'm reading your book, when I'm talking with my mom friends of fellow teen girls is that part of being a girl, um, an adolescent is being uncomfortable with your body. <laughs> like mm -hmm. that is like, like I know not one person who, when they were 14 or 15, didn't feel really weird in their body. Um, yeah. And so I think it's so important as moms for us to really reiterate to our girls in particular, like that's not weird that you feel weird. Yes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, know. I mean, yeah, you know, and there's, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go. Well, I mean, just one, I mean, this is probably an obvious thing to say, but I, I do think that it is really important to limit your teens' internet use. You know, you don't mm -hmm. want their primary sphere of existence to be in this disembodied 
strange realm of the internet. So I think, you know, if, like getting them to develop or really encouraging their hobbies and interests in a way that allows them to connect with their body and the real world. I think that's mm-hmm. also really important. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. We've talked about yeah, that. Before. I love this. And, and one of the things that you did um, that you talked about in your own sort of evolution that I'd love to touch on really quickly, if you could, because it, it, it's about that disembodiment. You talked a little bit about sort of playing around with this idea of Christian imagination or imagination and in your work um, sort of coming face to face with there's a difference between sort of the imaginative, the the realm of Christian imagination and the realm of Christian embodiment. Uh, it seems to me that we're really, really missing that right now. I came out of a tradition that talked a lot about Christian imagination to the point that I literally, sorry for the listeners who disagree, never want to hear the phrase again. Like, I'm just so tired of it because I'm like, but what about your damned body? Um, yeah. And so I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. Just, just uh, you know, what does it mean to be embodied people that have amazing imaginations, but that you can't limit things to the realm of, of the imagination or to the realm of the internet or, or the ephemeral, whatever the thing is? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Christianity is fundamentally not about imagination, but incarnation. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's Christianity is weirdly bodily and that's always been kind of freaky to people, you know, mm-hmm. like ooh, even in, you know, when, when Paul's preaching on the Areopagus to the Greeks, they're, you know, they walk away when they're like, Oh, the resurrection. Whoa, it's too much, you know, and mm-hmm. Christians with their relics carrying little bits of their bodies of their dead <laughs> friends around, you know, like what's going uh-huh. on here? Why? Um, but the body is so intensely important. And so I think I think maybe the way to rehab this imagination thing is to, to always connect it to embodiment. Like mm. Christianity is an incarnational imagination. So any kind of Christian imagination that's disincarnate is no longer Christian. Mm. You know, that's mm. that's totally denying the realm of the body or escaping the realm of the body, I think is is no longer Christian. Um mm-hmm. so that's yeah. I don't know. And I don't know how you feel, but that's a, that was a huge draw for me to Catholicism because mm-hmm. it was so embodied. I needed that like kneeling, standing, crossing myself, um, eating the body and blood of Christ kind of stuff yep. because in my evangelical upbringing, it was all in my head. Like I could yeah. live out my Christian faith in my head and I, it just got to where it was such a disconnect where it felt. Like, like kind of what you were, I think you mentioned something that at the beginning of our chat, like that you could talk or think about it, but you weren't actually practicing. It feels like that yeah, when absolutely. we keep it disembodied. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you can kind of hold these ideas in your head and that's what it means to be a Christian um, rather mm-hmm. than this whole way of practice that involves the body um, and, you know, regards the body as something sacred. So, oh yeah, the the bodily stuff of Catholicism was always what drew me, you know? And mm-hmm. I think especially the fact that, you know, anytime you walk into a Catholic space, there's lots of bodies around, but there's also a lot of female bodies around. Yes. And there was just something, there was just something healing about that. Mm. Before, and this is like before I was ever Catholic, like years before I was ever Catholic, just there was something healing about being in a Catholic space because there was this beauty um, of the female body, you know, mm-hmm. and 
and and also the male body. That's what was so wonderful. It's like there's both of them, and and there's this again this image of like harmony rather than conflict or erasure. You know, because I think yeah. that the kind of Christianity I grew up in, and maybe this is the you know true of the Reformation in general, but it seemed like it was the bodily stuff and the feminine stuff that was really kind of lopped off. You know, so. Mm-hmm. We kept the masculine stuff, so we kept the father metaphor. Um, we we kept some of the norms about like male headship and things like that. But we got rid of Mary, you know. We got rid of the idea of the church as our mother. Mm-hmm. We got rid of all the female saints. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that kind of balance you get in Catholicism of the masculine and feminism just felt like like really skewed yeah. toward the masculine. So that has been. And still is like super healing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, to kind of bring it back to the idea of, of raising teens right now, your series online, the Cultivating Catholic Feminism, I had my daughter do that this summer. So she basically awesome. earned kind of like half an elective is what we called it. Oh, <laughs> um, cool. Because I had her walk through it, um, take notes, do some research, and then basically do a presentation on a female saint um, using the things you teach in that series, you know, applying it to the, a saint of her choice. So she did um, St. Josephine Bikita and gave this really great presentation. And, um, but one of the reasons I had her do that is because she became Catholic. You know, we became Catholic as a family when she was 16 or almost a few days before 16. And that can be a tough mm-hmm. time to like suddenly be thrust into this world that yeah. feels really kind of <laughs> crazy and weird. And on the surface, I think our, um, modern world thinks of Catholicism as pretty anti-women. But like you say in that series, um, it's high value of women is was actually right up there with one of the main reasons I couldn't not mm-hmm. become a Catholic. And I know that's the same with your wife, uh, Seth, Amber, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, because Abigail, I know you've talked about like the struggle with the male priesthood and, and stuff like that mm-hmm. being such a deal breaker for you until you start realizing what value the women play in the building of the church. And I love that. I love that you had your daughter do that. That makes my day. <laughs> oh, good. So she, cool. was, she was so excited that I was talking to you today. Yay. She's like, tell her tell hi. Her hello. <laughs> <laughs> I will pass it on. Uh, that's good. All right. Well, any final, like, what would you like have our listeners walk away with when they are just in this world that we're all in regarding, you know, what does it mean to be a woman, to be a man? How do we navigate this with our neighbors, with love, um, yet still hold fast to truth? Oh, that's a huge well, potato I know. right there. <laughs> no, I mean, that's like the question, right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, you always meet the person with love, right? No matter mm-hmm. what, no matter where they are and. Um, Mm. you know, and I think the process of accompaniment is so important because I was, you know, I had wonderful people who patiently accompanied me in my kind of meandering toward the church and I didn't have all my ducks in a row. Mm. I didn't even have all my objections resolved. Like conversion is this ongoing thing, you know, it's, um, so I think being very patient and loving, um, with yourself and with other people around you is always it's always the go-to, you know, even if I, like I, I critique ideas a lot in my writing about gender, but when it comes to people, you know, it just, it's a, it's a really different 
I think, dimension there. The personal dimension is different. So I really try to distinguish between the people who adopt these ideas um, and being very compassionate toward those people versus, you know, critiquing some ideas that I actually think are, are, are harmful in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. And that gets into the embodiment, this idea of like living among real people. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, Abigail, I will say, um, you know, I've pro I'm probably the person uh, in my neck of the woods who recommends your book, uh, the Genesis of gender more than anyone. I know it's a fantastic book. I've read every page of it. <laughs> awesome. I'm force feeding it to my wife. I'm like, make him saying you have to read the rest of this book now. So take this from me to my wife, my <laughs> friends, um, some of my coworkers. Um, so thank you so much for your contribution. This mm. book is really phenomenal, really phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And the way you, um, sort of start at ground zero and and walk the reader through what it means to be living in this world um, today as it sort of revolves around this question of gender is is really spectacular. So, man, I for one really appreciate your work. Yep. Wow, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> same, hundred percent the same. So, thank you for what you what you've done for all yeah. of us. Um, so, we'd like to wrap up our. Uh, conversations with just talking about something true, good, or beautiful in our lives, since that's hmm. sort of the emphasis of of all our chats. So we're going to start with you, Abigail. Is there one thing in your life right now adding a bit more beauty or or what have you in your world right now? So one thing I'm, I'm starting to do more is just lighting candles for no reason, randomly, mm-hmm. especially because I, you know, I've got young kids still. The house is just this, like, it's chaotic. And so but there's just something about lighting a candle that's like, gosh, dang it. You know, there's something <laughs> holy and beautiful happening, even if it's just like, you know, there's just food everywhere. And so dinner especially is just complete. It's just like circus time, you know? And so I'm I'm like, I'm going to light a freaking candle though in the middle of the dinner table. Even <laughs> if like everything's chaotic, it's like, no, this is a special time. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's, that. I'm, I'm being a crazy candle lady lately. <laughs> I love it. That's good. It's better than being a crazy cat lady. I'm just saying. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Although, what if I start a fire? I need to make sure I'm, you know. That's a good point. Safe. That is true. That's a good point. Yes. Pull them out. Yeah. Um, so, Tish, uh, what, are, what are you reading, listening to, watching to, or lighting? I guess you could light something that's bringing uh, a little <laughs> mm-hmm. bit of truth, beauty, or goodness <laughs> to your life. I actually do love candles. I just blew one out right before we recorded so that the house didn't set on fire while we were talking. Um, For me, I am watching a show called Endeavor. Have either of y'all ever heard of this? Yes. British crime drama. Love it. Oh, boy. That's like my favorite genre. Seth knows I'm obnoxious about British stuff. Anglophiles unite. I know. Yeah. So it's a show. I'm watching it on PBS. I don't know. It's a British murder mystery show. I mean, there's a million of them, but they're all really good, mostly. And this one's right there with them. So I am literally on season two. But I, one of the things I really appreciate about British shows is like each episode is like a feature length film. Like you settle mm. in and it becomes your evening. And I like that. I mean, mm. 22 minute shows have their place, but there's something nice about like, I get another movie with the same characters this evening. So we've just been watching it slowly. We're not binging it or anything. Just an episode here and there. And I really like it. And, um, you know, we're at an age, Abigail, we've talked about this a lot, where my youngest is 12. And so we were now, thankfully, out of the uh, whatever equivalent of 
Blue's Clues is now. I don't even know anymore. Um, Bluey. Oh, that's true. I've heard of Bluey. I know nothing about him. Um, But we're still in this awkward, like, you're not going to like this or, Mm -hmm. you know. And so Mm -hmm. this kind of show we can all sort of kind of get into, even though it's a slow burn and my 12-year-old might find it boring, but it's not going to, like, scar him for life. And Mm -hmm. there's enough twists and turns to keep it interesting for all of us. So I recommend it. All right. Seth, how about you? What's adding more beauty to your life these days? So I don't know how this happened, but there was a book on my Kindle and it I didn't know anything about how it ended up there, but it's called <laughs> Father Elijah and Apocalypse. And I must have bought it. I've wanted to read that. I must have bought it a long time ago. I had no idea how it even got there. Um, and I was like, what the heck is this? So I started, uh, I Googled it. And I found out that a bunch of people are like, hey, here are, you know, the top 25 books written by religious people or about religious people you should read. And it ends up on all these lists. And so (laughs) evidently, at some point, I did this Google research and downloaded this book. Um, So I started reading it. It's really good. I just started it. But it's um, I wanted to get back to some fiction um, because I've been reading a lot of nonfiction lately. And um, I don't know, man, I'm like you know, I don't know, 15, 20% in and I'm kind of hooked. So yeah, Abigail, if you've been wanting to read it, you should read it. I will. I'm glad you reminded me. I, yeah, I've wanted to read that for a while. And evidently it's a part of this like really long series, but I, I don't know anything about Mm -hmm. the series. I just know this one book. Cool. Seth, I like that something showed up on your Kindle because that's happened to me before too. I'm like, what is what? How smart I was back in the day to give me mm-hmm. a gift in the future that I totally forgot. One hundred percent. It's pretty amazing. Uh huh. Uh huh. That's cool. Well, Abigail, thank you so much for hanging out with us. It has been, I mean, I want to say delightful, but it's also just been so encouraging because you're a voice mm-hmm. of reason in what I feel like is a world of insanity because you approach nuance in so many different ways. Um, and I think all of us feel very similar, but we just don't know how to say it. And your book gives us language. And so thank you so much for your work. Yeah. Thank you. This has been really fun. Well, guys, it is time to wrap this episode up. You can find it as well as all episodes at a drink with a friend.com. And you can also find there how you can help support the show by picking up the next round of drinks. Again, that's at a drink with a friend.com. And you can find me and how to connect with me at tishoxenwriter.com. Seth, how about you? Oh, just go to Substack, sethhaines.substack.com. And Abigail, where can people find you these days online? I'm only really on Twitter. That's my one little toe on social media, at Favali Abs. Nice. All right. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenreiter. I'm Tish Oxenreiter with Seth Haynes, and we'll be back here again with you soon. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.